The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Turn there to Revelation chapter 1. And notice in your notes that we have provided for you. If you want to follow along there, today we're doing an introduction to the book of Revelation. Hopefully I'll get through all 13 points I want to make today. I think I need about two hours this morning. So if you want to leave at 12.45 while I'm still preaching, you're welcome to. I'll just keep going until about 2. Just kidding. But we are going to move at a quick pace as we introduce the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read the first three verses. Follow along with me as I'm reading out of the updated New American Standard. <clears throat> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I love the book of Revelation, and I always have, ever since I became a new Christian. I'm just fascinated with it and began reading it. The very beginning of my Christian life, continued to read it, studied it. And it's always been a very encouraging book to me. And just for many years, it was my favorite book in the Bible. That's probably why it's true that I've taught on the book of Revelation in, in its entirety more than any other book I've taught on in the Bible over the last 20 years. Because I just love the book. There's a lot of reasons for that. I remember when I was, a, it was about 19 years ago, my senior year in seminary, I took an elective class, an upper division Greek class, from Dr. Robert L. Thomas, who in my opinion is the greatest living scholar on the book of Revelation today in his 80s, if not pushing his 90s. And he's, it's been his life work studying the book of Revelation. So I took this elective from him because I knew it was just a unique opportunity. And there were only three men who were brave enough to take it with him, and I was one of them. Didn't know if I was going to survive, but at least I'll start the class. And like I said, it was an upper division Greek class. It was called the Greek Exegesis of the Apocalypse was the title. And for 18 brutal weeks we had to translate every word in all 22 chapters from the Greek text in the book of Revelation and were grilled on it. And it was hard. It was grueling and tedious, but it was one of the greatest blessings in my early Christian life. And it's laid a foundation that's been beneficial to me ever since then. It was very encouraging. I just love the book of Revelation. And at the same time, what's ironic is I am convinced that the book of Revelation is the most neglected book by Christians today. I should say the most deliberately neglected book by Christians because there's other books that are neglected like Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John and I think that's primarily due to the fact that they are so small and sometimes get lost in the shuffle but Revelation is 22 chapters long and like I said anytime you thumb through a Bible you're going to end up on Revelation and so it's not hidden away it's there it's in your face and at the same time it is neglected time and time again 
by Christians. At least that's been my experience. As a matter of fact, for three and a half years, we've been interviewing, or I have, interviewing people to become members of Grace Bible Fellowship, and we always go through the Statement of Faith, and we have a section in our Statement of Faith on eschatology, the future, prophecy, things to come, which Revelation expounds upon, and and time and time again, that is the area where admittedly most Christians joining our church admit that they are somewhat agnostic, they're not sure, they're a little confused, they haven't really delved into a comprehensive, detailed study of eschatology and the book of Revelation, so that doesn't surprise me, so I think it's a highly neglected book, and there's a lot of reasons why it's neglected. I don't know if it's true of you that it's been neglected. I know for me it hasn't. Uh, Even as a young and new Christian, I couldn't get enough of Revelation. Just couldn't get enough of it. Saved radically at age 19, never learning about the Bible growing up. Total pagan, total pagan worldview. And when I became a Christian, reading Revelation was absolutely glorious. And I think that it was one thing about it is it was so exciting. What a, what a great story. It's more exciting than Avatar or Harry Potter or Clash of the Titans. Not only is it more exciting than all those, it's true. Revelation is true. It's awesome. But not everybody's excited about the book of Revelation. Before we started the church plant, I took my family. We had about a month and a half where we could actually go to somewhere else on a church on Sunday, which I hadn't had the privilege of doing and before the church plant. So I took uh, my family to a couple different churches, local in the Bay Area, and one of them was a Bible church on the peninsula. A historic, well-known church for its expository preaching. And I brought my whole family in there, and the place was packed, and the pastor was introduced, and they had several pastors, preaching pastors, and this one was the expert on Revelation and the scholarly pastor and sitting there with my wife and my four children, all the way down to age five or six, up to high school. And we listened to the 55-minute sermon. Maybe it was actually 59 minutes sermon. You think I preach long? 59 minutes. I'll never forget it. I was asking my wife Debbie about it last week. Do you remember that sermon we heard three and a half years ago? Yeah, she remembered it. Well, she remembered that it happened. Uh, we both remembered that it was, uh, it was erudite. It was scholarly. It was long, it was monotonous, it was boring, it was irrelevant, it was impractical, it was confounding and confusing. For me, it was very frustrating. Sitting in the last row, hundreds of people, halfway through the sermon, I am looking around to see, now, is everybody else as confused as I am? Because I don't even know what this guy is talking about. He's preaching out of a chapter out of Revelation. This is with my two master's degrees and my doctorate in theology and my having studied Revelation for an entire semester in the entire Greek text. I didn't know what this guy was talking about. If I'm confused, certainly my five-year-old is confused. Or I don't know, maybe he's got some insight. I don't know. I'll talk to him later. (laughs) So we talked about it afterwards in the car, and they all said the same thing. Wow, that was boring. Dad, did you know what he was talking about? I didn't totally didn't know it. So actually, when the sermon was over, I just made a beeline up to that pastor. And I was in his face. I was trying to be nice. I was trying to be calm. But I started asking some questions. Some penetrating, probing questions. Because I was thinking, what a horrible disservice pastors do when they get up and do that. They take the divinely inspired Word of God that God has given His people with the intent of blessing people, encouraging people, 
and confusing them and making it boring and over their head. And so esoteric, you can't even understand what it's talking about. That was not God's intention or design with Scripture, especially the book of Revelation. So that helps me understand why many Christians really don't want anything to do with Revelation. They don't understand it. It's too confusing. I have the entire set of John Calvin's commentaries that were written in the 15 and 1600s, starting in Genesis. He, wrote a, he was an incredible scholar and exegete, exegeting from Scripture from Hebrew and Greek. He did not write a commentary on the book of Revelation. Why? Because he found it too confusing. I commend him for that. He was a pastor and a preacher. I don't understand it, therefore, I'm not going to try to pretend that I do. So that was that pastor. That was very frustrating. And then I'll never forget an experience I had about 16 years ago from one of my mentors and a man who discipled me, mentored me, was a model to me, even as to this day, and is at a pretty significant church. And he's been there almost 20 years. Great preacher, great Bible teacher. For whatever reason, I can't remember the context, about 16 years ago we had a conversation. We hadn't seen each other in a while, and he just felt compelled to tell me, and we went to the same seminary, that... You know, I don't, uh, I don't believe the same thing about eschatology that I did when I graduated from the Master, master Seminary. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't believe everything Johnny Mac says on it anymore. Oh, really? I don't know why he's telling me this, but anyway, he's kind of proud of it. And then he went on just to tell me, I thought it was kind of bizarre. He said, yeah, you know, revelation and eschatology, it's so confusing. You know, it can even be divisive in the body of Christ. That's why I have decided as a pastor, I am never going to preach on revelation in my church. I was speechless. And I thought... I didn't say this. I thought in my heart, you sissy. That's what I was thinking. I did follow up and ask him why. I thought I did talk about, well, I, I think that's a shame because it's part of the New Testament. And I talk to Christians, and occasionally I'll ask this question. It's a probing question. It's a, a litmus test. It's a diagnostic question. I'll ask believers, checking out their uh, Bibliology 101. Which book is more important, Romans or Revelation? And routinely they will say, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course it's Romans. And then I'll go, ah, wrong answer. Which book is more important, the Gospel of John or Revelation? And routinely, oh, it's John. Ah, wrong answer. Out of the 66 books of the Bible, they are all equally important. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, every one of them, from Genesis to Revelation. Useful, intended, and given by God to profit the church and every Christian. Not only is it profitable, what is it profitable for? For training, for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God will be complete Adequate, perfect, mature in Christ. All Scripture. So Christians do a terrible disservice and pastors even do a greater disservice when they neglect the book of Revelation. Why in the world anybody wouldn't want to study, know, and live in the book of Revelation? It just boggles my mind. It's the end of the story. When do you ever pick up a book and read a great story and then you get to the last chapter? I'm not going to read it. Because you don't want to know how it ends. That does not make sense. That's what Revelation is to the, the, the Bible. It is the conclusion. It is the last, greatest chapter. It fulfills and answers everything. Paul was committed to teaching the saints while he was a pastor the full 
counsel of God. You cannot do that if you neglect the book of Revelation or any other book in the Bible. So it is a mandate of the church to know the book of Revelation, to read it, to study it, to know it, to apply it to your life. It's a mandate. It cannot be neglected. We cannot be disobedient. Shun it aside. Well, people say, well, it's not practical. Well, then you obviously haven't read it and studied it and applied it to your life. That's, you're speaking out of total ignorance if you say that. Coincidentally, ironically, no, I don't think so, providentially, this very morning, I was talking with a fellow believer in our church, heard their detailed testimony. They came to know Jesus Christ at age seven through the truths of the book of Revelation. They did not know that I was speaking on Revelation today. I thought, that is awesome. Not only the Gospel of John and John 3.16 that brings people to Christ. The truths of the book of Revelation brought this person to salvation. That is awesome. Well, it's not a surprise because in 22 chapters, every chapter is about Jesus Christ. That's what the book is called. Revelation 1.1. The revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in His glory. How could a Christian not be excited about this book? I don't get it. So I purposely, I've been praying for months, God, what do you want me to do next? What shall I preach through next? I was going back and forth and I had several different options and I finally landed on Revelation. And one of the reasons was the verse I started out with, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed. That means to be blessed by God. Christian, do you want to be blessed by God? I do. I need every blessing I can get. Blessed is he, blessed is she, blessed is every believer who reads this book. You know, there's a special blessing just for reading the book. Taking in the content of God's fullness of truth. It's a blessing. But that's not the only blessing. So read the book and you will be blessed. More blessings. Blessed is the one who reads this book. Blessed is the one who hears this book. That means... Not only read it and take it in, but also understand it. Study it. Ruminate on it. Meditate on it. Pray through this book. That's the second blessing. Read it. Understand it. Third blessing. Blessed is the one who reads this book, those who hear the words of this prophecy. And third blessing. And those who heed the things which are written in it, who obey what is written in Revelation. You mean there are things in Revelation you can actually do and obey? Yes, it says it right here. You mean that Revelation is a practical book? Absolutely, it says it right here. Well, I thought Revelation was irrelevant and totally impractical and all theoretical and esoteric. Wrong. God said it is practical and you will be blessed. By the way, there is no book in the Bible out of the 66 books of the Bible save Revelation that begins with an explicit promised blessing from God just for reading it understanding it, and applying it to your life. That is awesome. Why would you not want to read Revelation? I want to bless my church. I want to be blessed. And that's why in the end, after I prayed, I'm preaching through Revelation. I'm going to bless my people whether they want to be blessed or not. Because God's going to move through the power of His Word. Let's go ahead and now go to the introduction of Revelation. This is absolutely key. If there is anybody who's a regular who is not here today, and they come next week... uh, we need to all, all hold them accountable. You've got to get the introduction that was preached last week because this is laying the foundation. You've got to understand this first before you delve into the book. This is all foundational. It is critical, but it will be very helpful in a practical way. So let's go ahead and look at the 13 points I came up with. 
Follow along if you can. Here we go. Introduction, the book of Revelation, number one. Title of the book, Revelation. Notice it's not Revelations, plural. Hear that all the time. Minor technicality, but it's, it's the Revelation. It's a Greek word, apocalypsis, apocalyptic, which has absolutely nothing to do with apocalyptic literature, by the way. We'll talk about that. Apocalypse, just a Greek word. It means to unveil. It's like to pull away the curtains so that what you can see something displayed. So it's an unveiling. It's taking the blinders away. It's showing something in the, its fullness of glory. That's what Revelation is. The unveiling. The unveiling of what? Uncover it. Well, verse 1 says the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation is all about. Seeing Jesus Christ in His all-glorious, majestic glory. What a great way to follow the Gospel of John. Where we saw Jesus the God-man in His humiliation, shrouded and clouded in flesh. Not sin, but humanity. Jesus Christ in humiliation. The suffering servant. That's how we saw Him in John and in the Gospels. Here it's a totally different Jesus. It's the glorious Jesus. The unveiled Jesus. Jesus in all of His glory. Virtually every chapter in Revelation is about the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only do we have a privilege every Sunday for over 80 sermons for almost two years to face Jesus Christ personally in the Gospel of John, we get the same great privilege to do that in Revelation. So it's the Revelation. Number two, what is the theme? Well, there's multi, many themes weaving through, complementing one another. We've already alluded to the first one. And that is, one of the themes is Jesus in glory. Not in humiliation like in the Gospels. Jesus in the fullness of His glory. We're going to see that. Another theme. The book of Revelation is a fulfillment of prophecy. It is a fulfillment. It's amazing if you take Revelation and put it next to Genesis. All these things that began in Genesis or all the questions left unanswered in Genesis are answered in Revelation. Jesus said He came not to undermine the Old Testament but to fulfill it. And we see the fulfillment of dozens if not hundreds of prophecies in the book of Revelation It's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's how the story ends, including the next point of a theme of Revelation is the revelation is the culmination of history. History is God's plan. History is His story. God's plan. God is sovereign. He is providential. He has a plan. History is not meaningless and aimless. It is purposeful and planned and God is sovereignly in control. He's headed somewhere with His perfect goal. What is that goal? You see that goal reached finally In the book of Revelation, it is the culmination of all of world history. Uh, The next point, what else about it? Evil is punished. Many of us, I hope, as Christians are like the guy in Psalms 76, crying out to God, God, why why does evil prosper in this world? Why are good and faithful people so so many times shut down? And we don't get justice in this life, God. That is a legitimate question that the Christian asks and prays in his or her heart. God understands that. There is a day of coming. That's why God said, vengeance is mine. There is a day of reckoning. If it doesn't happen in this life, it's going to happen. And we know it's going to happen in the future. God is going to set everything straight in the future. We see many ways He does that in the book of Revelation where finally evil is punished. All evil. Evil, wicked people. Christ rejectors. Persecutors of believers. Satan himself. False religion. It is all judged. So in that sense, evil is punished and revelation, in a real sense, it is a book of wrath. A book of wrath. What does that mean? That's a, it is a book of the outpouring of God's holy wrath. God gets angry. Anger is not always a sin. Did you know that? 
Because God has anger. God has wrath. It's an inherent attribute of Almighty, perfect God. And whenever God gets wrathful and works out His wrath, it is perfect wrath, sinful wrath, deserved wrath, holy wrath. That's what this book is about. The book of Revelation is about blessing believers and giving due justice to those who reject God. It's a book of wrath. And then finally regarding the theme, God's final victory is secure. Man, when I get down in the dumps, I don't know if you ever get down in the dumps or depressed. I get depressed. You know that? I get depressed. I don't know if you ever get depressed. Many times, when I do, and I don't have any hope in this life, and this world stinks, I will open up the Revelation many times. Sometimes I'll cheat and skip all the way to chapter 19 and start reading there. 19 to 22. Man, this is awesome. Jesus is coming. I'm going to heaven. Heaven is awesome. I want to go there. It's all about God's victory. Victory, the Greek word is Nike. Nike. That's what Nike means. Nike did not invent that name. They stole it out of the Bible. That's where it comes from. Victory. Overcomers. We're going to see that in Revelation 2 and 3. God's people are the victors. Uh, number three, the author. This is, it's John the Apostle. Verse 1. It says, The revelation was given to Jesus' bondservant, John, four times. John is mentioned by name. There is no question. This is John the Apostle. It was at the end of his age. He was the only apostle who wasn't murdered early on. He lived out a full life. He wrote this book. Next point. Somewhere between 94 and 96 A.D. during the reign of Domitian, Roman emperor, which makes Revelation the last book written in the Bible. Some people try to tell us even today that the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D., that is absolutely not true. During the time of Nero, that is absolutely not true. Totally impossible. Do not be confused. Do not be misled. Early church history is basically unanimous on this. So is the church history all throughout and the context of Revelation and John's life. Written about 94 to 96 A.D., the last book, and appropriately so. The setting of the book of Revelation. John, at the time of writing, he is a prisoner. He is a prisoner. He has been arrested. He has been chained. He has been confined. He has been brutalized. For being a a lawbreaker, what was his crime? Believing in Jesus and preaching the Gospel. Well, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. It happens all over the world. And it's going to be happening more and more in America. I'm convinced of it. John is a prisoner at the time that he wrote this. He was confined to a work camp on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea about 100 kilometers south and west of Ephesus, where John was a pastor for many decades. Very similar to what Alcatraz would be to San Francisco, except much further out, 100 kilometers. Prison camp, that's where he is when he got this revelation. Number six, the outline. We don't have to make up an outline. God gives us a supernatural divine outline. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. The first chapter... Jesus gave us the divine outline, Revelation 1.19. It's a threefold outline of the book. This is the key to how you understand the book. Jesus said to John, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. John, write down everything that you just saw about my vision that just happened in the first part of chapter 1 that's in the past. The things which you have seen. The glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Write it down. That's the first point. Things past. Jesus goes on. So write, therefore, the things which you have seen, point two. 
and the things which are. Present tense. The things that are going on right now in this life, which is actually chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. And it's all about the churches. It's the churches that existed then, and it is the church age. And we'll talk more about that. So the outline is things that happened, the vision he saw of Christ, the things which are going on right now, not the future, not the past, right now, the churches that you pastored, that you helped plant, that you helped minister to in Asia Minor. They have names. They're seven. They're literal. They're historical. That's chapter 2 and 3. You might even say chapters 2 through 5. 4 and 5 is the vision of heaven. And then finally, the last part of the book of Revelation, right, the things which you have seen, the things which are church, the churches, and then the things which shall take place after these things. That is the future-oriented things. Because I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to answer the question that Daniel had 600 years before in chapter 12 when he said, God, how's it all going to end? This is amazing. I am confused. I want to see it. And, and God said, no. This is sealed up till the end time. It was sealed up till it was given to John through Revelation. The future. This will infect your worldview like nothing else to know how the future is going to end. Don't you want to know the future? I do. How's it all going to end? It ends with a touchdown. God is the victor. That is the good news. But most of Revelation is future. That is huge. That is the key to interpreting this book. Most of Revelation is future. I didn't make it up. I didn't get it from Tim LaHaye. I got it from the Bible from Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. The things which shall take place after the dealings of the church. That's the threefold divinely inspired outline from Jesus Himself. Number seven. What about the genre of the book? This is a big deal that so-called Bible scholars make today about how you should approach and study a book. Well, before you study any book in the Bible, before you read any book of the Bible, especially to your children, you need to understand the genre, the secret esoteric genre. Because if you don't know the genre of the book, you can't understand it properly. Really? I don't believe that. But anyway, what is the genre? Well, most commentators today would say that it's apocalyptic. That is not true. So number seven, genre, it is prophecy. That is the genre. The genre is prophecy. Just like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, you know, all those. Same thing. Same literature. There aren't any apocalyptic books in the Old Testament. When people try to say that, well, Revelation's apocalyptic. Oh, really? Okay, you give me the six identifying marks of apocalyptic literature, and then maybe I'll believe you. It has nothing to do with apocalyptic literature. It is prophecy. How do I know that? I did not get that from reading the Left Behind series. I got that from Jesus in the Bible. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants, the things which must shortly come to take place. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, or literally, the words of this prophecy. So he's calling his literature prophecy. And then at the end, in John, uh, Revelation 22, 17 and 18, he calls it the prophecy. He calls his book bookends. Chapter 1, chapter 22, Revelation is prophetic, inspired literature. That is the genre. I don't need to understand some other man-made definition of a genre before I can understand the book. I am convinced I can give the book of Revelation to my nine-year-old son and he can just sit there and read it with his slurpee and understand it and be excited. Without having studied Greek. Number eight, huge point, hermeneutics. You need to have the proper hermeneutic when you approach the book of Revelation or any other book in the Bible. What is hermeneutics? 
Short definition. Hermeneutics, the rules of interpretation. That's what hermeneutics is. The rules of interpretation. The laws of interpretation. Exegesis is how you apply those rules. Whether the rules you made up or the rules that are legitimate. If you don't have a proper hermeneutic on Revelation, you're just going to botch the book to pieces. Chances are you've got a study Bible, if it's not the MacArthur study Bible, or commentaries on Revelation, if you have them. They've botched Revelation all over the place. They're right a lot, and then they're wrong a lot. Because the hermeneutic typically and consistently is it, it's inconsistent consistently. They're not even thinking about hermeneutics and the rules of hermeneutics. They'll, they'll read John, the Gospel of John, and take it literally at face value. And Yeah, I believe Jesus walked on the water and made all kinds of uh, bread out of just a few loaves and fish and did all and wrote, raised people from the dead like Lazarus. I believe those amazing, unbelievable miracles. But when I get to Revelation, I don't believe it. Oh, really? That seems rather inconsistent of you. But anyway, hermeneutics is just the, uh, applying the proper rules to the book of Revelation. And I will say that the, the hermeneutic or the rules of interpretation that you apply to Revelation is exactly the same rules you apply to Philippians and Romans and John and Genesis and Obadiah. Exactly the same. And it is the grammatical, historical approach of hermeneutics. What does that mean? Grammar. Grammatical. Grammar matters. Syntax matters. Every word, every verb, every tense, every noun. can't tell you how many pastors and theologians I've interacted with on Revelation and you quote some details out of Revelation. They don't want to hear it. Don't, bother, don't confuse me with the details of the text. I want to hold my view. No, well, we've got to look at what the Bible says. Revelation. Grammatical. The grammar matters. We believe in inspiration. We don't just believe in inspiration of the Bible. We believe in verbal Plenary inspiration. Plenary. The whole thing. The whole enchilada. Genesis to Revelation. Not just the red letters. Not just the Gospels. Even Leviticus, we believe, is inspired. That's plenary inspiration. But we also believe in verbal inspiration. The very words. Jesus did. He came up with an entire, complicated, detailed doctrine of the resurrection based on the tense of the verb to be. In the Gospels. And preached on it authoritatively. So our hermeneutic is going to be the grammatical... Oh, historical. So it's grammatical, historical. Historical means it's real history. It really happened. In other words, it's not allegorical. There's a difference between symbolism and allegory. We'll talk about that. So this is history. It's true history. These were real seven books. By the way, there was a great... I mean, many pastors have done this, but Harry Ironside was a great Bible teacher in the early 1900s. He was at Moody Bible Church, great evangelist, wrote all kinds of great books. But on the book of Revelation, unfortunately, the great Harry Ironside said point blank at the beginning of his study, Revelation is symbolic, therefore we cannot take it literally. That's wrong. That is shameful. That is detrimental. We can't take it literally? John is real. He's literal. He's mentioned in verse 3. Jesus is real. He's literal. He's mentioned in verse 1. The seven churches of Asia Minor, they're real. They were literal. John pastored at those churches. What do you mean it's not literal? Number nine, various views and approaches regarding hermeneutics. Go through these quickly. There's the preterist view. In other words, everything in Revelation for the most part has already happened past tense. The preterist tense. Latin, Spanish, and other languages. It's already happened. It's ain't future. It's something that's already happened. R.C. Sproul believes this. He's written a book on it. The last days according to Jesus. 
When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, in the clouds, on a horse, in glory, with a sword coming out of His mouth, to wage war against His enemies, we are told, that's not Jesus. Didn't you know that? That's the Roman army coming in 70 A.D. to attack Jerusalem. Oh, I didn't know that. When I read it, I thought it was Jesus because it says His name is the Word of God. My bad. It says His name is the King of kings and Lord of lords. My bad. So that would be the preterist view. It's already happened. There's the historicist view. A panorama. Revelation supposedly, supposedly is a panorama of unfolding church history. Tim LaHaye does this in chapters 2 and 3 in his commentary where he takes each church. Each church really isn't a church as much as it's symbolic of church periods and church ages, says Tim LaHaye. He didn't make this up. He got it from somebody else. So the first church mentioned, Ephesus is a reference to a certain period. And then the church of Smyrna actually represents church history from the time of 100 A.D. till the time of 312 A.D. And if you're reading through the Bible, you're going, huh? That didn't say that. But that's what he says. So that's the historicist view, and it's very subjective. Uh, there's the idealist view, which is the view of the ESV study Bible. And probably most evangelicals today, it's achronological. It doesn't care about chronology in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, it says there is no sequential chronology in Revelation. It's just a bunch of religious stories that teach spiritual truth that are general, applicable to any area. It ignores the prophetic elements and sequential development. Uh, it just rejects chronology altogether. As a matter of fact, this view says everything in Revelation 1 to 18 is always happening in the church age which is amazing to me. So you can open up Revelation anywhere between chapters 1 through 18 and say, well, this is applying right now. This is going on right now. I don't see how you can do that when you get to chapters 16, 17, and 18, when more than half the world is being destroyed with meteors and everything flying out of the sky and blood everywhere. That ain't happening. But they try to tell us it is. And then finally, oh, then there's the hodgepodge view, and that's just your typical Christian who says, well, I like this Bible preacher on some things, like MacArthur, and then I like Swindoll, and I like... Uh, Charles Stanley, and I like Piper, and I like Jack Hayford, and I like et cetera, et cetera. And then you just kind of this grab bag of stuff, and you're not even thinking about their approach to Scripture, their hermeneutics, because not one of those guys I just mentioned has the same hermeneutic with respect to Revelation. But that's typical of Christian. Then finally, I would propose this is the correct view, and that's the futurist view. Why? Because it's in the Bible. We saw that in verse 19. Jesus said, John, write about the things yet to come. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, in Revelation, God tells John now regarding the things yet to come. Very simple. So I would say that Revelation chapter 4, verse on, it's all future. It hasn't happened yet. It makes it very simple. The futurist view. And, that, and that's just by reading the text the same way you would read the Gospel of John. Okay, number 10, the purpose of the book. Well, there are many purposes. I'll highlight just a few. Revelation was written to encourage seven churches in Asia Minor. That was the original audience, and that was, that was huge. John knew these people. He pastored probably at a couple of those churches. He may have helped found some of those churches. His heart was there. He loved these people. Some of them were undergoing persecution, even death. And he wrote on behalf of Jesus Christ to encourage them, to give them hope, and to let them know that Jesus Christ cares about His church. That is the first audience. So he's writing to a real people. Seven churches of Asia Minor. He also wrote to motivate the church of all the ages, to encourage us. That was intentional because it's mentioned seven times in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And we're going to see that. This book was written for you and me, Christian. 2010. This book was also written to show believers how the world ends. And that will transform your worldview. And that will give you hope in this life and encouragement in this life. 
like nothing else. God also gave us this book to complete written revelation, as we already talked about, fulfilling prophecy. And then finally, uh, the purpose explicitly stated in verse 3 is God wants to bless His people. He wants to bless anybody that reads Revelation, understands it, and applies it to their life. Revelation is a practical book. Things It's got moral and ethical calls to obedience, by the way, which was one of, one of the biggest differences between true apocalyptic literature and scriptural prophecy. In apocalyptic literature, especially Jewish apocalyptic literature, there were no moral, ethical calls to obedience. And another thing about apocalyptic literature is it puts Satan and evil on an equal par with God. And you've got this endless, perpetual battle back and forth of the light versus the dark. Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. That's Zoroastrianism. That is not Christianity. In Revelation, there is no question who the winner is. It is God. He is the victor. He is the victor. Satan is a fallen creation. And he's getting his due. So that's the multi-purposes. Number 11, myths about Revelation. We've addressed some of these. Um, Typical. Well, we can't study it or read it because it's too hard to understand. Too hard to understand. I would say no, it's not. Just read it normally like you would any other book. Well, it's impractical and irrelevant. We already dispelled that myth because of Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. It's very practical. Very, very practical. Especially for the church life in chapters 2 and 3. What, what's another myth? Well, it, it can be interpreted in so many ways. Everybody's got an opinion. Well, that is true that everybody's got an opinion, but that doesn't mean that everybody's got a legitimate, correct opinion. Well, that's arrogant of you. How arrogant of you to say that you actually have the correct view of revelation? Well, I don't think it's, it's arrogant at all. If it's true that there are many different confusing, legitimate views of revelation, then that's actually kind of evil of God to torture His people. That He gives them a book intending to bless them on a practical level, yet they're not, allowed, or they're not even able to understand it. We don't even know what's true and what's not. So maybe there's a lot of views, but... Most of those are wrong views, and I think there's only one correct view. And the early church understood the correct view because they just read it and understood it when John wrote it. It took church history to mess it up with allegory. So there's one proper interpretation. It's the same way you interpret every other book in the Bible. And finally, well, it's just too controversial. As my pastor friend said, we can't study. It's just too controversial. No, it's not. Truth is controversial. The Word of God is controversial. The Holy God is controversial. Doesn't mean we don't speak about it. Jesus was controversial. We saw that in the Gospel of John, didn't we? But we need to pursue truth regardless. Let the chips fall where they may. And then number twelve, perspicuity. What's that? Perspicuity is the clarity of scripture. The clarity of scripture. The church has believed this for two thousand years. This is bibliology. This is a doctrine of the Bible. Not only do we believe in inerrancy and inspiration and canonicity, and authority of Scripture. We believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. In other words, God gave each book of the Bible in the language of the people. This is not incomprehensible language God used when He communicated. God wants His people to understand Him. And every book in the Bible is written in the language of the people so that when they heard it, it made sense. It was not difficult. It was not over the head. It was not highfalutin, scholarly, incomprehensible language. Jesus spoke in very basic terminology. Hey, when he's preaching to thousands of people, hey, look at the birds of the air. Seven-year-olds could understand that. Oh, look at the pretty lilies over there on the hillside. That's how God provides. That's how how God communicates to his people. 
This is called the clarity of Scripture. God wants, God intends His people to fully understand His Word. So that's why for 2,000 years the church has believed in the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. I want to highlight some points on that. God's Word, Scripture, can be readily understood and applied by Christians by virtue of the following. The manner in which the Word of God was communicated. And like I already said, that God has given His Bible to people in the language of the people so they could understand it. God's people can also understand Scripture clearly with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is called our teacher. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And First John says, He is your teacher. He illuminates and opens your mind so you can understand spiritual truth in the Bible. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is all about. The last verse in chapter 2 says, We Christians have the mind of Christ. That is an amazing statement. If you are a Christian, you have the mind of Christ. And that means you have the ability, unlike an unbeliever, to understand spiritual truth that is found in Scripture. Powerful. And then finally, we can understand Scripture, and there's clarity of Scripture, because God has intentionally given the gift of Bible teachers to His church. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. Jesus Christ, when He rose from the dead, He gave gifts to His church to help it grow. And He lists those gifts. And He says, and the first gifts that were given were actually offices or men in the church. The gift of apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. These are gifts Christ gave to His church to help them understand Scripture. Teachers. We all need teachers of Scripture. I need teachers. So with the help of a teacher... That helps us understand Scripture. I think of Acts chapter 8 when Philip met up with the Ethiopian eunuch and the Ethiopian eunuch was reading his Hebrew scroll or whatever it was in Isaiah 53 and he was actually very confused but he was very intrigued and he's reading it out loud and he's kind of mumbling and Philip overhears it and said, hey there, what you reading? And then he tells him, he says, oh yeah, that's Isaiah 53 even though they didn't have chapter divisions at that time. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, are you kidding? How can I understand if I don't have a teacher to explain it to me? And then Philip jumps up there in the chariot and they have a little Bible study. And Philip, the teacher slash evangelist, gift from the church, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, taught the eunuch. The lights went on. He understood it and he got saved. The gift of teachers allows clarity of Scripture. Uh, and then just regarding perspicuity and a lack of clarity in Scripture, Satan was the first to ever undermine the doctrine of perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture when he questioned God's truth and said, did God really say? What he was saying to Adam and Eve is, you didn't hear God right. You misunderstood His revelation. You misunderstood His truth. You need secret information to understand the Bible. So I, Satan, will tell you the truth. That's undermining the clarity or perspicuity of Scripture. That goes on all the time today. Jesus said categorically in John 8.32 to His disciples, know the truth. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is understood. It is presupposed in those words of Jesus. If He says know the truth, then that means we can know the truth. We can. That's clarity of Scripture. And then finally Luke 24 and 25, Jesus having a Bible study, or before He has the Bible study with two of His disciples, and He's telling them about Gospel truth and Old Testament Scripture, and these guys are not getting it. It is unclear. And He rebukes them and says, man, you guys are fools. You are slow of heart to believe. This is in the Scripture. How can you not know this? And then he enlightened them as a teacher and rabbi. And then finally, let's conclude with key thoughts on Revelation. And next week, we'll just delve into chapter 1. It's going to be fun. I don't know if you're excited, but I am very excited. Um, 
And I would encourage you to be blessed this week and for your devotions, maybe start reading Revelation. Read the book ahead of time. Listen to it on CD in your car, wherever you go, when you go jogging. Fill your mind with Revelation. Be blessed. So key thoughts on Revelation as we close. Before I get to letter A, thought of another one. The number seven is used about 50 times in Revelation. It's pretty significant, the number seven. Seven this, seven that, seven. We'll talk about that. Numbers. Uh, letter A, key thoughts. Revelation alludes to the Old Testament over 400 times. If you don't understand the Old Testament, if you're not a student of the Old Testament, if you haven't read it, I can see why you'd be confused by Revelation because so much of it is just a, a reference. out of It just flows out of out of the Old Testament. That's why John, when he wrote this, was a Jew. He was a rabbi. He was a master of the Old Testament. Probably had a lot of the Old Testament memorized. And it's just second nature. This is a no-brainer. Everybody knows the Old Testament. So he writes Revelation and everything about it practically refers back to the Old Testament. But we're pretty biblically illiterate as a culture today. And so, yeah, it's understandable. We miss a lot of truths that are blatant in the Old Testament. Uh, another key thought about Revelation, be John explains most of his symbols. People say, well, it's so symbolic and can't understand it, and who knows what John meant. And commentators come up with all kinds of interpretations of what something represents or means. When the fact of the matter is, as you go through Revelation, anytime John has a symbol, and I saw a lampstand. Well, John, I wonder what it is. Let's guess. Well, you don't need to guess because he tells you what the lampstand is. The lampstands are the churches. And the stars, and he explains what those are. And I'm not, so he explains most of his symbols. So he helps us out on that. Uh, letter C, churches, church. The word Christian, as a matter of fact. But churches in particular, and churches mentioned 19 times in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. 19 times. It's about the churches. Very significantly, the word church, the word churches, the word Christian is not mentioned one time in chapters 6 through 18 when it's talking and describing the Great Tribulation. Very significant. The church is not mentioned in the detailed description of the Great Tribulation. Well, why do you call it the Great You dispensationalists calling it the Great Tribulation. No, it's not us dispensationalists. It was actually Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. It says it is the Great Tribulation. That's where I got that word. So the church is not mentioned in the Tribulation. D, the book of Revelation is sequential and chronological. Can't get around it. It's a fact. E, the rapture is not taught in Revelation. Ha! Therefore, the rapture is not in the Bible. I don't believe it. No. Uh, the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 explicitly. So it's in there. John 14. 1 Corinthians 15. But it's not mentioned in Revelation explicitly. It doesn't need to be. It's already been taught on. And then finally, uh, key thought on Revelation. God is punishing unbelievers during the Great Tribulation. We already talked about that. God is punishing unbelievers in the great tribulation. So that is our jet tour of an overview of the introduction of the book of Revelation. And now let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless us as we study it together because he did promise to bless us. Father, thank you so much for our time together, the time to be with the saints, to worship you, to look at your word, also to be taught of you. And God, I do pray that you would be our teacher, especially the Holy Spirit. As we approach Scripture, because it is divine, it is from you with an eternal mind and humans on our own. God, we can't understand the mind of God, but you've given us salvation, the indwelling Holy Spirit, teachers in the church, 
We thank you so much for that. And I do pray that we would be blessed as a church as we continue our study of Revelation and hopefully apply it to our lives all to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.